Welcome, and thank you for listening today. This Caregiver Life podcast focuses on caregivers from all walks of life. Throughout the episodes, we will hear from caregivers on the front line, those who do the day-to-day, sometimes hour-to-hour caregiving. We will also hear from care recipients, professionals in the field of caregiving, and other various topics of interest to those living this caregiver life. Suicide is a tough and complex issue, but seeing how you can do your part in helping yourself and those around you can make all the difference. If you or someone you know is in crisis, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255. They're available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 365 days a year, and agents speak both English and Spanish. Hi, Jen. Hi, Mayor. How are you today on this rainy day? Well, I'm inside, so that's good, but we are getting banned from Hurricane Sally, and you know I was thinking that hurricanes are kind of a recurring theme of this caregiver life, and isn't this caregiver life sometimes like battling a hurricane? Yeah, it really is. I, I did um, I one of my check, quick checklists for today. We did, um, I did a workout. We had physical therapy, respiratory therapy. I put out some fires for my son again. We had lunch and I jumped into a podcast. So this caregiver life. Oh, and we still don't have hoses for the ventilator. So when I get off here, we have to make some phone calls about that. Well, I had, I've had five conference calls today and I did an interview with the Florida Times Union about caregivers, which I'm really excited to read here in a couple of weeks. Um, But more importantly, I was looking forward to today to this particular conference call to this podcast recording because we have a special guest. Who's with us? Well, he's somebody you and I both know. And I'm going to ask him to introduce himself so that our audience members know all the amazing things that he's done. So Sherman, welcome to the show. Thank you, ladies. I'm uh, glad to be here to talk to you about uh, not only all the great work you're doing, but to hopefully give your viewers uh, something to take away that'll make life just a little bit easier or, or at least more empowered. So I'm looking forward to it. Well, that's fantastic. Now, uh, where do you hail from? Where are you? What's life like for you right now? My wife, who's also my caregiver, we live in Arlington, Virginia. Uh, we're like everyone else. We're hunkered down, uh, not just by social distancing, but also by homeschooling. <laughs> so we have to, <laughs> Tammy and I are, are both tag teaming my son's homeschooling situation. And it's She's handling it a lot better than I am because as a caregiver, she's used to having to manage so many things all at once. And uh, I, I always appreciated what she had to do, but I'm, I even more appreciate not only our second grade teachers across the country, but also uh, in this time when there are a lot of caregivers probably having to add this to the litany of things that they already have to do for their loved ones. So um, I, I truly appreciate now more than ever that uh, caregivers need the support that, uh, that we owe them. Well, I'm, I'm so glad you shared that sentiment because Mayor and I have heard from caregivers far and wide who are raising children that homeschooling, well, it wasn't really something they had room on their plate for, but here we all are. Um, and we did do a show about homeschooling that gave some tips, I think, and, and also made the difference between, you know, facilitating the education of your child in your home, as opposed to homeschooling, which are really two different things. And um, I know many parents are looking forward to when their children go back to school when it's safe. Wasn't that like the vacation after a a long summer? Uh, 
fall would come and, and kids would give their parents that vacation by going back to school. So uh, this time it's a little different. It sure is. Well, okay, so other than being a second grade teacher, uh, tell us a little bit about the work that you're doing. Well, I work at ANVETS. It's a natural organization, one of the major veteran service organizations that uh, has posts around the country. Uh, the work I do is mainly centered in Washington, D.C., where we deal with legislation and uh, just, just, just keep the folks who run this country and the, the senior leaders at the agency uh, within the VA and Department of Defense um, informed about the experience of the folks that their budget and all their work impacts. Uh, in this case, we are at a time of year when uh, there's an election coming up. And so we have a lot of people who are vying for re-election, some of them vying for uh, election seats for the first time. Uh, so this is an important time to talk about what constituents need, what they what they have to have to get through not just the pandemic, but also just to live um, in terms of jobs and support, healthcare, all those things. Um, and specific to caregivers, we wanna make sure that people who want our vote are attuned to the needs as it relates to providing care for the men and women who serve this country. Um, that's a tough enough job, but when you have caregivers essentially provide an extension of care beyond the walls of the VA into homes, you have to factor in things like, uh, you know, what are the budgets for things that support those caregivers so they can care for the veterans. So it's almost like a domino effect. And I don't think a lot of them know that. They won't know that uh, by common sense because to them, that's not a common experience. So we have to be the ones in their ear, either on Capitol Hill or in media, which is the role I play in many cases. I'm talking to uh, media, uh, major media, so that we can ensure the message reaches not just caregivers who need to get the information, but also the people making decisions that impact them. Uh, so this has been a busy season with engaging both administrations, both the, the Trump and the Biden administration, because we don't, whoever's in charge, they need to know this. Uh, but as well as local leaders and, and, and encouraging uh, caregivers and veterans to also be a part of their own advocacy by knowing how to access the lawmakers in your area, your districts and your state, and feeling empowered to have your voice heard. So I spend a lot of time trying to get people who are our voters to understand their power and their responsibility in this democracy to let their voices be heard. So uh, that's that's been the big push right now is, is so that nobody feels like they're left out of this process and and they're too small to have their voices heard in all this. And, and you won't see a lot of the platforms involve veterans and caregivers. Uh, that doesn't mean they don't have one. That just means that that's not what gets them elected. So we have to, behind the scenes, engage the staff and, and all the people who are helping their candidate get elected um, to understand that this is also a part of the role that you'll play as commander in chief and all the other various roles in the, uh, in the, um, in, in the government. So. That's a lot of it is, is behind the scenes stuff, but it's it's certainly work that has to be done. Oh, so important. And one of the things I've always admired about AMVETS, uh, there's an AMVETS post in Bloomington, Indiana, where I hail from. It's a rather large one, in fact. And one of the things that I've always loved about AMVETS is that their focus isn't just on the veteran and it it expands out to the veteran and the family and to the community. It's as open to community members uh, as it is to the veterans. And I just love that about AMVETS. And I also, you know, I just, I want to second what you said about advocacy. You know, so many of us don't think that we're 
a big enough fish in this giant pond of America to share our story or that our vote will matter or that our voice will be heard. But the truth is, is that by contacting our elected officials and by communicating with the folks who are running for office, we make an impact. It's sort of like throwing a pebble into a pond. You know, it doesn't make a big splash, but over time, the ripple effect is huge. And so I'm, I'm glad that you're at the part of making all of this possible. Um, I've seen your work for years and um, just continue to be impressed with, with how um, strong you yell the rallying cry. And there aren't very many people out there that are doing that. And also I wanna thank you for including Mayor and I in your media tour. That's right. <laughs> right. Now, I wanna switch gears a little bit. Um, it is, we are recording this in September. September is Suicide Prevention Awareness Month. And, um, and I, I, so I wanna talk a little bit about what kind of legislation is, is happening right now is in the works or is recent legislation that focuses on veteran suicide and uh and and also i want to talk about one of those gaps that you mentioned uh that oftentimes even the programs that we have in place to support the veterans caregivers don't take into effect their mental health needs or their uh their physical wellness needs and so I want to know what's going on with support for uh, veteran suicide and mm -hmm. finding some solutions and how caregivers roll into that. Well, let me give you a bit of a background because this problem is, is complicated by the fact that um, it, it falls off the radar and we get focused on so many other things that we forget. This has been an effort we um, took on since the new Congress came in almost two years ago. So it's been that long, we've been talking about veteran suicide as an issue where nothing has happened. Um, the Clay Hunt Act passed about five years ago, yeah. and it called for research, it called for at this point in time, for that research to have flowered into something useful so that we can make policy changes, and that research essentially didn't happen, and Congress didn't do the oversight over that time period, so we have the five-year period has expired with nothing. There's just been no fruit born from the passage of that Clay Hunt Act. There may have been other things, but, but that was one big part of it that needed to happen and it didn't happen. So we began to ring the alarm bells about that. And so what happened, uh, maybe at the beginning of the, of the session of Congress a year and a half ago, we had all these promises about what was gonna happen, all these different types of uh, programmatic changes and all these different types of research that was gonna unfold. Uh, and in a lot of cases, it needed a bill to push the effort and the bills, uh, they just kind of piled up. So you ended up with a whole lot of bills, but nothing that was uh, that was movable, as they say on the hills, so nothing that could move because it it would have either a barrier because of uh, partisan philosophy. You know, firearms was a big part of that. And then you had things that were driven by special interests like the pharmacy industry. Hmm. You start talking about things like reducing access to medications or the need for medications. You know, it's like having the tobacco company, you know, address cancer. Yeah. It's like that. I have a question to ask you. Mm -hmm. Well, first, I want to say the Clay Hunt Act is something I'm very passionate about because my former Senator Joe Donnelly is the one who 
named the Clay Hunt Act after a Hoosier veteran who took his own life. He worked very closely with the parents of that veteran. Um, and when everyone was so excited about the promise that it held. Right. Um, I'm going to take a call to action from today's podcast and connect with my senators and congressmen and also with Todd Young, who has uh, now has a seat on the Senate for Indiana. And I'm going to ask uh, what progress is being made. I, I, what we need is another Joe Donnelly on the floor exactly. asking for these things to be done. But um, I wanted to to ask you, we've heard a number about veteran suicide. It's got 22, 20, 18. Do we know the number and how important is that number? I'm gonna answer the question directly, but I'm also gonna give you my philosophy behind it. Uh, the number 22 was from an initial study that, um, that kind of averaged it out. And what I don't like about that is it suggests that we're gonna sit here and 22 people are gonna die by suicide. It doesn't work that way. It happens in clusters at different times of year. And anytime you do statistical averaging, you're not really talking about um, real tangible problems. You're just kind of giving it a, you know, a way to digest it in, in this sort of uh, aggregated data kind of way that doesn't really tell you anything. For example, most suicides happen around the fall and springtime. And there's a reason for that. It has to do with seasonal changes, when people get sick, when they tend to be alone. So if you're thinking that, uh, A, that it's just going to be 22 every day, it doesn't quite work out that way. It just sort of averages. It's also not really important because the number doesn't necessarily mean it's only 22. It, today it could be 34 and we wouldn't know it, you know, and then maybe mm -hmm. later in the year it tapers off. So we really have to not become consumed by the number, but but the, the, the magnitude of the problem, which is if it's 18 a day, that's still bad. If it's one a day. Right. If, if it's, it's, one, it's one a day, that's probably something we'd have to accept because people are going to die and we can't do anything about every single one of them. But what I'm concerned about are the ones where they've accessed care and have fallen out for whatever reason. And you can trace their downfall to something that shouldn't have happened. For example, in DC, the IG just did a study where the doctor actually said, I don't care if he dies or worse to that effect because she felt like he was malingering. And he, he killed himself, you know, so there are there are times when we're when we can do something. Now I want to say this, the 18 to 22, that was derived from uh, consolidating the number of active duty, reserve, guard, and veteran deaths. So uh, in, in, the, in the last study that came out last year, it ended up being about 20 a day. That's not that far off from 22. So I think it just basically said that no change happened. Mm -hmm. And then what happened is the VA began to count deaths just among veterans and separate those out. So it went down to like 17 or 18.5. And then they further dissected the numbers by saying most of those were from veterans who didn't go to the VA. Well, here's the thing. Most of the veterans that didn't go to the VA in the past two years preceding death. So mm -hmm. it could have been a veteran who went three years ago or didn't get a flu shot, didn't go to the VA because they didn't need it or it wasn't told about it. I don't think that gets them off. I don't care how many veterans didn't go to the VA if they had a DD-214 and died by suicide, we should be counting them and not concerned with, you know, where they went the last two years. I mean, that doesn't tell us anything. It just sort of absolves certain people of responsibility for those deaths. So the numbers have transfixed a lot of people to them, uh, but, but it's deceiving because the numbers really don't matter when you think about how about 6,000 a year are going to die in some way, shape, or form 
whether it's by firearm, whether they were, you know, in the VA system, all that stuff doesn't matter. We want to stop those men and women from making that fatal choice, regardless of their status or where they got care. Now, we know that a well-supported veteran, veteran who has a caregiver, mm -hmm. is often at less risk for suicide. So we're going to take a break. And when we come back, I want to talk to you about a program that's established to support caregivers, but I think there are some issues that we want to talk about. So we'll be right back. I'm starting the conversation. I'm fighting to end the stigma. I'm posting about mental health. We're, We're socializing hope. hope. I like that. Me gusta eso. Help us mind our future. Let's tag it, tweet it. Share it. Instagram it. Show us what you're doing to start the conversation and end the stigma. Okay, now we're headed back into a pretty, what I want to say, deep conversation. A little bit different than uh, what we normally talk about, which are caregiver issues. We've been talking about veterans and suicide and all the things that AMVETS is doing nationally and locally to advocate for veterans, their elected officials, and try to get some changes in policy. Uh, but there's a policy with uh, the VA caregiver program that's going to go through some changes on October 1st. Um, the VA caregiver program uh, really came into the news back in May of 2011 when they started adding caregivers to the program to, uh, they were post 9-11 caregivers who were taking care of their veteran who had served in Iraq or Afghanistan. I have to say, I was one of them. I was one of the first 200 caregivers in the program um, on May 11th, that was my induction date. And the program was really great for me. Uh, it gave me a stipend to care for my brother. And it was the first time that I really was recognized as a caregiver. But it didn't fill all the gaps in my life. And even after I was enrolled in the caregiver program, I actually experienced some very severe depression and had thoughts of suicide. And it was only because of a nonprofit, Wounded Warrior Project, who recognized that I was in crisis and got me the help that I needed, that I'm actually here today. And so I want to talk to you about the VA caregiver program, what you're hearing from caregivers, and what is being done. First of all, I, I appreciate all your work you did um, because you were very visible uh, when that program came out. We needed people like you to step out front and, and really, um, first of all, be willing to be a face because I think caregivers didn't have an identity for a long time, and if they did, it was sort of an incidental to the individual that you're caring for instead of being a whole person. And so I think that by having people like you get out there and, and put your face on the issue, it made it a lot easier for others to come out and say, hey, that's me. I, I need to, you know, I'm, I'm recognized. Like you said, that, that recognition was important. Um, that program, uh, as it was negotiated, there was discussion uh, about how to support caregivers, what they needed. And so what, what came from that was, uh, mental health support, um, the stipend, which, it, you know, I, some folks look at it as if it's it's kind of a, like a state assistance kind of thing, but it really was to make up for the lost opportunities that a lot of caregivers suffered who had college degrees and they had other means of making a living if they didn't have to provide care, you know, by yeah, the way, was on behalf I mean, I of the VA. I was yeah. one of those caregivers. I was making $60,000, $70,000 a year Mm -hmm. uh, before 9-11. And right. even after receiving the stipend, I was only getting, bringing home $6,000 a year. Nobody's, a, nobody's become a millionaire off of this. No. It's just enough 
to pay for all the things that are also a part of providing care. Mm -hmm. with the transportation needs and all the other additional things that the, the VA didn't cover. Um, so it was supposed to provide some relief in, in other ways and, and the, the health, the mental health support was an important part of it if it worked, you know what I mean? If, if the access uh, delivered as promised and things like that. So that was, that was a part of the original deal. A lot of caregivers got on a program that were post 9-11. It, it wasn't for anybody before that time. And, you know, in many ways it was an experiment because they found out that there were more caregivers than they had planned for. Uh, the, the program was, was essentially strained in terms of the budget and they had to find ways to trim down the number of caregivers that were on the program because they had underestimated how many would be eligible. Yeah, so they're expanding it on October 1st to other areas. What's the problem with that? Well, first of all, it was um, a provision in the Mission Act that passed uh, last year and, and was implemented. Actually, it was passed a year before and implemented last year. So it was supposed to be implemented a year and a half ago, the expansion to pre 9-11 caregivers. So that was the first thing. It was delayed for a year and a half. Now the problem is, again, when you have issues with the original program that haven't been fully worked out, and then you're going to expand it to this other core of caregivers, um, you're just going to basically expand the problem. Problems being uh, the, the inability to <clears throat> uh, incorporate a due process, uh, an appeals process into uh, the program that would allow caregivers who have an issue with a decision that was made, for example, the tier that they'd be assigned or just being kicked off the program without being able to make the case for why you should be. Those so for our listeners who aren't familiar, um, a caregiver of a, a, a wounded post 9-11 veteran, or, and now it will be expanded to other areas, uh, they have to qualify. So the veteran's health is, uh, is considered, it's surveyed on a regular basis, usually every quarter. And uh, the amount of assistance that the, the veteran needs is, is then made, is determined right. by the VA caregiver program. And if they determine that the veteran no longer needs that assistance, then the caregiver is removed and no longer receives the benefits, including the stipend. But there's no appeal process. There's no formal process for saying, but wait a minute, you didn't have these records or you didn't take into consideration right. this mental health condition. Um, and so how can it be that there is a denial process without an appeal process? Well, because the way the, the benefit is being construed uh, or at least interpreted by those who run the program, it's not a benefit per se. So in other words, if you have compensation or if you have other benefits you get from the VA, you have the right to appeal if it's removed. Well, they're saying, well, this is a different class of what I call a benefit, but they're not going to call it that because legally, if you're getting a benefit, you can't take it away without there being due process. They're saying, well, this isn't that kind of benefit. This wasn't meant to be that kind of benefit. So it doesn't require an appeals process to manage it. And we disagree. We fundamentally, fundamentally disagree. Uh, we believe it is a veteran's benefit. That's why the VA is administering it. It's a it may not be a benefit for the caregiver in the traditional sense, but because it benefits a veteran, we think it should be an appealable uh, benefit if there's a disagreement with how it's administered for that veteran, at least for the veteran. So mm -hmm. uh, there's some philosophical disagreement over that. And, and, and right now it's winning out because there's still no appeals process. So a veteran is 
suffering, a veteran's being cared for, but they may not necessarily be supported. It, there's so many questions with this program expansion. Um, and I know there are many uh, good people working on it, both inside the VA and outside the VA, just with you at AMVETS. Um, I do wanna, wanna point out that um, the, the, any gaps in a program that supports a community like caregivers, um, only takes away from the effectiveness of that community. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we have to think about right now during this pandemic, the stresses that we're putting on caregivers. So in addition to caregivers having to juggle their health care of their veteran, social isolation, homeschooling, potentially um, learning how to do all these Zoom, telehealth, everything. Uh, now they're also having to figure out these changes of a new program. And I'll be honest with you, I'm not hearing much chatter on the street about it. You know, there aren't, isn't, uh, they aren't handing out guidebooks on how this program is going to work. Uh, if well, anybody please, hears... Let me, well, let me say this. I did get a packet in the mail that did explain it. So maybe it's, it's just for those folks who are on the program for getting this information. Uh, I did get that last week. Good. Yeah, well, it's, I, a thick, it's a thick packet and there's a lot to digest, so I'm not sure if that's helpful. But in, on balance, they, they are sending the information out, and we did receive that. That's wonderful. Um, so if you, if you are a caregiver of a veteran and you haven't received it, you can reach out to the VA. Uh, you can talk to uh, your folks at your VA, or you can also go to caregiver.va.gov. Uh, there's a phone number you can chat. There's a million ways that you can get in touch with them. I have found that uh, that part of the VA to be extremely responsive. So I would send you there. Uh, there's also, that's a great way for caregiver uh, veterans to find um, support groups, to ask about mental health resources, um, whether you're going to apply for this program, whether you're already in or you're never going to qualify. Uh, it's, they're there for you. Um, and I, I do want to say, ask about the resources that AMVETS has available to caregivers. You know, um, I read a CDC report recently that said 31% of unpaid family caregivers uh, have reported uh, considering suicide since this pandemic started uh, compared to 11% of other adults. Now to give everybody just an idea, normally before the pandemic, about 4% of adults would say in the previous 30 days that they had thought about suicide. So we've jumped for caregivers right. 4% to 31. It's terrifying. Uh, I know a lot of organizations are out there, they're working hard like NAMI, Wounded Warrior Project, to put together uh, support for caregivers. What's AMVETS doing? Two years ago, we started a HEAL program, which it essentially allows us to examine the factors in a given veteran's life that may lead to crisis and intervene. And I keep it broad because I think that there have to be programs that take the veterans as they are. And we don't try to fit them into a cookie cutter. We ask, what's, what's hindering your ability to fully live? And if it's related to benefits, if it's related to healthcare access, the quality of the care, a lot of times it's things like they got a debt letter for uh, an emergency room bill or the caregiver program, kick them off. So we'll do virtually anything. And it's a case management approach to solving problems that put veterans in crisis. And so we get calls from caregivers because they couldn't get their veteran in for an appointment during COVID. So we have to help them understand the Mission Act. Um, so it's, it's kind of like an all-purpose, holistic uh, approach to intervention. And uh, I borrowed a lot of that approach from my previous experience at Paralyzed Veterans of America, where we virtually 
own the whole veteran and all the things that could happen to somebody, we applied that model to now non-paralyzed veterans so that we can get involved with a, with a HIPAA clearance, with a uh, being assigned as their accredited representative, we can call the VA leadership on their behalf. So we can do so much um, through what we call our HEAL program. Um, and of course, right now it's, it's really about scale at this point because so many people are having so many issues. So we've had to really strategize on how we can help the most veterans with, with the least amount of effort, which may entail uh, simply writing a letter to a, a network director and saying, why is this veteran not getting a prosthetic device? I want to see in writing what it is that you're denying it based on. And sometimes it turns out that the doctor didn't write something simple. You know, so we try to just figure out what is it that's getting in the way right now? Let us help you with that. Let us attach you to sustained support. And then we'll back out and see how you do with that. And that's been an effective way to help a lot of people over the last two years through our HEAL program. Well, I just want to say that case the case management approach is something that Mayor and I are both fans of. It's the way that we've gotten uh, problems solved for the loved ones that we care for. And for our listeners who don't care for a veteran and are wondering, well, where do I go to get case management? Um, you may have to explore organizations. Uh, you might, you're gonna have to do some research on the internet, check out on Facebook. Uh, but there are a lot of organizations like AARP that'll help connect you uh, to case management, either in a community that you belong to or locally or regionally. Um, but always having a social worker, case manager, a benefits officer on your side makes a difference. It truly does. And I can't imagine a better one than a Marine. I forgot to mention in your intro that you, for an answer, so <laughs> you don't stop until the mission is finished. Right. And uh, I want to say there, there's a couple of important people in my life that are Marines as well. Uh, the first is the Marine who uh, read a message that I put on Facebook back in 2012. I uh, read it for what it was, which was a cry for help. Uh, intervened on my behalf and got me the help I needed. And this, the second really important Marine in my life is my son, Grant Teak. He's a veteran now. Um, his time in the Marine Corps is over, but I'm super proud of him. Now, Mayor, you know a Marine, don't you? Uh, I think so. He's, uh, so he's my guy. He's, he's Tom Ward. He's my Marine. He, he has saved me over and over and over again. And I always look like the strong one in this team, but Hands down, he's the guy that carries me through day after day. Now, I've monopolized Sherm's time, and we're almost to the end of our show, but I wanted to ask you, do you have any questions for Sherman? Is there anything that you'd like to add? I do. Well, first of all, I want to thank Sherm, not just for being on the show, but he's helped me with many, many, many things. I've, I've tapped into him, and he, and he does always answer literally the call when I've called him or written him an email, so I appreciate that. Um, I think... Probably the big question I have is if a veteran is struggling or a caregiver is struggling with their veteran or even with themselves, um, can they call AMVETS? Is there a number that they can call AMVETS? Because not being alone is one of probably the best thing we can do. It's probably the thing that can save so many of us when we realize we're not alone. So we have a toll-free number, 1-833-VET-HEAL, V-E-T. H-E-A-L, I think it's 838-4325, I believe is the number. If they call that number, they may have to leave a message because there's not too many of us and we have to take the calls as they come, but we answer every one of them. I can also uh, receive an email through um, vet-heal 
I'm sorry, vethill, not vet-dash, vethill at anvets.org. So I get emails all the time from people everywhere and they'll say, hey, I need some advice on this. If I can answer the email right on the spot, I'll normally do that. If I have time, I'll make a call right on the spot, say, hey, what's going on so we can figure it out. Um, but you know what? I get a lot of contacts through social media, a lot of them. So I'm on Facebook at S. Gillums. I'm on Twitter. And if you write me a DM about a problem you're having or if you answer a post I put up, and I put up a lot of posts about uh, education, about just, you know, worldview and things like that. But if you write me um, and we, we have to have a conversation right then, we'll talk. And I'll figure out a way to either connect you with a, a good resource or I'll do what I can to help. Um, but I think that having access to me through Facebook has been really important because people reach out when they're in those moments and that's the time to, to help. So I don't want to restrict everybody to a, a voicemail or an email because I may not get them in time, but I'm always checking my DMs to make sure there's not somebody who's reached out that needs immediate help. So that's probably the best way to find me, S. Gillums, G-I-L-L-U-M-S, on Facebook and Twitter. So you're not alone. That's our message to our caregivers. You're not alone. You can reach out to Jennifer or I as well at thiscaregiverlife at gmail.com. That's probably the fastest and best way to get to us. And if we can't help you, we will find somebody who can. And you don't, do not have to walk this journey by yourself. You matter. Uh, Mayor and I have uh, pretty thick Rolodexes now with our uh, combined 50 plus years of caregiving. Uh, it makes us sound old to say that, Mayor. Um, <laughs> but uh, one of the reasons that we do this show is because we love to help people. And so if you're struggling, please reach out. Uh, we're also going to bookend this show today with some information on how you can reach the National Crisis Hotline uh, if you're in crisis or someone you love is in crisis. So, um, Sherm, I can't thank you enough for being with us today. Mayor, as always, you just warm my heart. I know. You too. We, we save each other every single day. Okay. <laughs> and you help an awful lot of people too, so I want to just commend both of you for this platform, but there's a lot of work that you all have you, you've, you've blazed a lot of trails. Um, you've helped a lot of people become empowered and, uh, and certainly just being here in your presence to talk about this is certainly an honor for me. So I appreciate the invitation to uh, talk about this important thing. Man, I can't, I can't think of getting a compliment from somebody better. I'm just honored. Thank you so much. <laughs> okay. You certainly deserve it. All righty. Till the next time. Till Veterans Crisis Line connects veterans as well as their families and friends with qualified caring responders from the Department of Veterans Affairs through a confidential toll-free hotline, online chat, or text. Veterans and their loved ones can call 1-800-273-8255 and press option 1. They can chat online at crisistextline.org or send a text message to 741 741 to receive confidential support 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, and 365 days a year.